You're listening to Feral Attraction, hosted by Metrico and Vero the Science Collie. On this week's episode, we open with a discussion on ways to be more emotionally intelligent. Our main topic is on polyamorous and monogamous mixed relationships. We offer our suggestions on how to make these often difficult relationship structures succeed. We close out the show with two questions, one on erectile dysfunction and the other on a potentially abusive fiancé of a friend. Hello again and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrica. And I'm Fear of the Science Collie. So before we get the episode kicked off, uh, I, I do want to thank everybody for your patience and understanding. I know that last week we had to take off due to scheduling and Anthrocon and all sorts of amazing fun things that happened. Um, we'll have more about what happened last week at the end of the show with a little Anthrocon review. And also we apparently had a small appearance on Dan Savage. We'll be talking about next week. Oh, that I didn't appear on Dan Savage. That, that would be kinky, but I appeared on the show. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> well, we'll talk more about that next week, but this week we had an article that uh, was by talent smart. Um, but I think by the uh, one of their founders, right, Travis Bradbury, who is the co-founder of Talent Smart, Doctor Bradbury, indeed, and he wrote an article about nine things that emotionally intelligent people won't do. It's a very clickbaity sounding title, but please bear with me, despite the obvious clickbait of the of the title, because the content of this is actually really good. Surprisingly, like I, when I read it, I was expecting this to suck. But then I was like, wait a second, this is actually a legit author and these, these points are pretty good. So it's just written in that style because apparently that's just how you write web articles these days. So the cringe factor is pretty high. But despite the format, here we go. So number one, I'm going to do this kind of David Letterman style. <laughs> Top 10 list, right, everyone. <laughs> I've always wanted to do that. This is kind of my moment. Okay, here we go. They won't let anyone limit their joy. So that might sound kind of weird, but what they're talking about there is basically the glass ceiling on enjoyment and happiness you can feel when you compare yourself to others and when your meter stick for success is a comparison to other people. Unfortunately, and this is something that I try to say pretty often on the show and in my actual life, the only person you can ever really compete with is yourself because that's the only person you're ever on a truly even footing with who has the exact same advantages and disadvantages and attributes as you. So the only person you're ever competing with is previous iterations of yourself, which is basically you and your past, right? So if you're doing better than you were doing a minute ago, an hour ago, a day ago, a year ago, five years ago, you know, you can be proud of that. And that's something you should take pleasure in. And that's actually a major source of joy is that sense of improvement from the past. So that's, you know, a really important thing to take away from that is not, not imposing a glass ceiling on your joy by saying, you know what? I don't have as fancy of a car as the Murphys or, you know, my lawn isn't as well kept as the Johnsons. And, you know, if you let yourself get caught up in those types of things or, you know, my wife isn't as hot as his wife or he's got three foxes and I've only got two or whatever your issue might be, um, you know, you don't want to get caught up in those comparisons because maybe your two foxes are better than his three foxes. Who can say? You know, it also has a lot to do with your own personal agency. If you are so consumed by what other people think of you, their opinions, if you allow those to reign 
you know, free range opinions of other people that will incredible, have an incredible impact on the joy that you have in life. So you kind of have to, we had an entire episode about the art of not giving a fuck. You kind of have to not give a fuck about what people think of you, because that is always in a constant state of flux. People will go from being satisfied to dissatisfied. They will think that, well, your art is good, but it's not as good as somebody else's. Or maybe, well, your art is good, but you fucked up on the hind paw, so you're imperfect and I don't like it. So you have to take your own sort of joy from within. You know, you don't have to compare yourself with others like Vera was saying, and you don't have to listen to other people compare you to other people. It has to come from within. The only proviso I would put on what Metrico was just saying is the uh, guideline of not giving a fuck what others think of you should not be taken with permission to be a sociopath. <laughs> no. And because some people want to interpret me saying that that way. And I've had people come at me that way. And that's actually... When you combine relationship anarchy with that attitude, what you get is basically a trail of tears. And I don't recommend it for either you or the people who you surround yourself with, because it's going to suck. So what I do recommend is having a very firm sense of self and a sense of your own integrity and your own morality. Because when you stop giving a shit what other people think of you, the only thing you have left to guide your actions and to keep you on the path toward being an ethical person is your own moral standards, right? And your own sense of integrity and your own sense of what I will and will not do. And you have to hold yourself accountable, right? So if you don't care what others think of you, that means that you have to have a very strong sense of self and a very strong sense of what it is that it means to be you and to make sure that you're moving yourself towards that goal of being that truest version of yourself, right? So yeah. that's really important. It is not a license to be an asshole to people. It is not a license to hurt people. Our advice to not care what others think of you is based on a guideline of you being a good person and striving to be a good person. If you are not striving to be a good person, do not follow that advice. If you do not understand what it means to strive to be a good person, then you do need to care what others think of you because then others' displeasure will make be a guideline to the fact that you're hurting them, right? So then you need to care about that a whole lot more. But if you are someone who actually has that strong backbone, then you are able to move on to that next phase of not giving a fuck what others think and actually being your own boss. And that's actually really cool. If you can get to that point of personal development, it's actually a really nice place to be. So that's a kind of long-winded caveat but it's really important because i don't i don't want to license people to be sociopaths don't let me do that please okay second point they won't forget so this is implying that they will forgive but they won't forget so what do we mean by that well forgiveness is basically the idea that we you don't don't want to hold on to a grudge we we don't hold on to negative feelings about people beyond when those negative feelings are useful or logical or kind of, you know, attached to the situation, right? So let's say that someone hurts me. I might feel pain over that hurt in the short term. And then I might think about it and realize that person didn't mean to hurt me and I might choose to forgive them. So then I let go of that hurt, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that I want that person to come back and hurt me again, or I want to give that person another opportunity to hurt me. I'm still going to remember that that person hurt me. And I might not give them the same opportunity or access to hurt me again because I do have the right to protect myself and to protect my own integrity, right? So that means that I don't forget that that person hurt me. 
I might not choose to invite them to do in a, in a situation where they could do so again, but I do forgive them. And I don't hold on to hold a grudge or hold on to negativity. It gets kind of back to that age-old saying, that truism, that it's much uh, it takes much more energy to hate someone than it does to be indifferent towards them. And it's kind of that same idea here, where you it, you don't want to hate someone, but you don't necessarily want to invite them back in to hurt you again. Uh, you can be in, you can be kind of indifferent from a distance, even if you do forgive, right? Absolutely. You know, one thing that you always want to avoid is allowing people to set negative and abusive patterns in your life. Forgiveness is incredibly important, but forgiveness does not lead to you being ignorant of shitty behaviors. It kind of goes back to the first point. If people are behaving in a sociopathic nature in your life, Forgiving them is one thing, forgetting their actions and allowing them to kind of sow a path of destruction is indicative of you not really having a lot of good agency or integrity for yourself. Forgiveness is only part of the story. You can forgive somebody, but that doesn't mean that they continue to be part of your life. You can forgive somebody and say, not only am I letting go of the negative emotions and the harm that you've done in my life, I'm also letting go of the connection that I have. Sometimes you have to burn a bridge in order to truly get forgiveness. So it's important to evaluate what the level of forgiveness that the individual that is seeking it requires from you. Because the more and more that you forgive somebody and forget their past actions the more and more of a pattern of sociopathy that they establish, the more and more that you become complicit in their behavior. So it's important to be emotionally intelligent to forgive, but not forget. And that doesn't mean that you hold a grudge. That doesn't mean that every day you're like, hey, remember that time three years ago where you cheated? It doesn't mean you do that. What it means, though, is that one time is an occurrence. Two times is a hobby. Three times is a problem. If it starts being a problem, you have to find other ways to eliminate that from your life in order to maintain integrity and emotional intelligence. That's really what it means. You don't have to be vengeful. You can be forgiving, but you also have to be just. And then three, they won't die in the fight. So this is basically knowing when to choose your battles and realizing that sometimes... And this is actually one of my own flaws, if I'm going to be personal for a minute. I don't mind doing that on the show. I think it actually kind of helps us make points. I actually try to be vulnerable whenever I can. But this is one that I struggle with myself sometimes. And it's actually one of the things that I think lowers my emotional intelligence a bit, unfortunately. It's something that I work on. And it's that sometimes I do have a tendency to really have a, a strong sense of injustice. And when I feel that I've been wronged or I feel that I've seen a mistake happen, I really want to just like correct it. And I really want to fix it and make it better for the next time, right? And I have this really strong urge to fix it and right every wrong. And I kind of go on these crusades, right? But the thing is, sometimes it's just not worth the effort. Sometimes the struggle you have to go through in order to fix the mistake or to point out the flaw, it just ends up becoming really wearing because there's this kind of negative energy associated with pointing out someone, with criticizing someone, even if it's well-intentioned, even if it's constructive criticism, there still is a point to be made that receiving constant criticism from a loved one, even if it's well-intentioned, can be extremely wearing. And so you need to really, you do need to be careful to choose your battles and to only criticize when it's actually going to matter. So maybe bringing up the fact that they don't squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom every single night isn't worth the effort, 
but you know bringing up hey you you know you fucked the milkmaid without asking like what's up with that like maybe that one's worth bringing to ground right like that one might be worth bringing up with your partner <laughs> like you have to choose like hey this is actually a serious relationship issue versus like this kind of mildly irritates me but like do i really want my night to be about this argument like you know what i mean so there's definitely a, a sense of knowing which hills you want to die on. Is my my mate Leo finally likes to remind me, Vera, you need to choose which hill you want to die on. So that's you know, take my mate Leo's advice there. What a very Christian kind of statement. You know, the hill that you want to die on, like well, he is a Christian for make sure that it's Golgotha. You know, yeah, the hill of skulls and bones. It is important to choose your fights because, again, it goes to the idea of emotional bandwidth. The more that you're fighting, the more fronts that you have, the more likely it is that you will break as a person. Make sure that you don't make everything into a big battle. Don't make every molehill into a mountain. It can be easy, really easy to in a relationship. But Yeah, that's definitely the case, right? I mean, I think... And, you know, the problem is with, with loved ones, you're really invested in them being, you know, improving, right? Because, like, you care about them so much, you want them to be the best possible versions of themselves. And really, your goal in a relationship is to help people be the best possible versions of themselves, right? Right. But you have to realize, you kind of have to wait for them to want the help. And you can't always be, like, the taskmaster taking them to task when they fuck up, right? Like. There's, there's, yeah. You don't want to be a disciplinarian in your relationship, right? Because you don't want to be the policeman. You want to maintain that loving connection, right? Where it's like you want to be tolerant of your mate's imperfections and not strive, trying to stomp them out all the time. Yeah. So, and that leads into point number four, which is they won't prioritize perfection, right? Yeah, perfect segue. So, yeah, perfect segue. So I try. So <laughs> um, basically the, the, this author argues that emotionally intelligent people don't see perfection as a tar- valid target because they know it doesn't exist. And this is really important. I think part of something that I think people really struggle with, and this comes from the tradition of Stoicism that I'm a huge proponent of, is, and this is actually something that uh, Albert Einstein once said too, that I was one of my favorite all-time quotes, is that in order to move beyond our limitations, we must first accept them, right? It's a super Stoic saying, but it's so cool, and it's so, so true. But it really applies here too, because... Part of accepting your limitations is realizing that you have limitations and that you're never going to achieve perfection because there's no such thing because you're a human being and you're not perfect. I hate to tell you, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Uh, So because perfection doesn't exist, you have to tolerate imperfection in both yourself and in other people, right? So that's what I was just talking about. We accept, you know what? Occasionally, I'm going to fuck up. Occasionally, you're going to fuck up. Occasionally, we will both fuck up occasionally we'll fuck up at the same time occasionally we'll take turns fucking up you know what we're both human shit's gonna happen and what's what we should judge ourselves by is not the shit happening but how we handle the shit when it happens right so it's all about how we choose to react and that's also a very stoic idea right so monitoring our reactions being very intentional with how we react to situations accepting fallibility and the fact that we are flawed in ourselves and also then being tolerant of mistakes and flaws in our partners, and especially of the little things, because we realize that they are only human beings too. And as much as we'd like our partners to be superhuman, they are not, right? You know, I think that's a good way of also, you know, leading into the next point where 
people that are emotionally intelligent don't live in the past. And this is something that we have spoken about on the show, coupled with the idea of stoicism, coupled with pragmatism as well. Failure sucks. And everybody that's listening to this, I, Vero, everybody that's been on the show will ever be on the show, will ever listen to the show. Every human will have failure in their life. It is part of the natural cycle. No matter how hard we try, there are going to be some things that we just fail at. And we can take risks in relationships. We can take risks in life and try to achieve something that is beautiful and difficult and fail at it. And the thing is, is that if you're an emotionally intelligent person, you have to understand that failure is just a natural part of life. And that part of being strong is rising up in the face of that failure, not letting it beat you up, not forcing you to relive it every day, every second, every hour. When you take risks in life, when you take risks in relationships and you fail, you shouldn't allow that failure to stop you from trying again. It doesn't mean that you'll never succeed. It means that in this specific venture, you have failed. Learn from it. Grow from it. Become a better person for it and move on from it. You can still call back to it. Hey, like like Vera and I do on this show where we talk about our past failures, but you don't hear us talking about how we still think about it every day and every second. We use it as a platform in order to grow ourselves. Humanity, we build the foundation of our lives, of our integrity on success and failure. And you can't really have one without the other in order to be completely stable. So it's important that you integrate failure into your life in a way that doesn't force you to become stuck in the past, but allows for you to use failure and success as a springboard into future endeavors where you will continue to have success and failure because that's just life. I have a really useful uh, mnemonic for this, actually, which is fail and fall forward which means you want to make sure that you're maintaining positive momentum. There's nothing wrong with failing and falling as long as you use that fall and you channel the energy of falling into a forward direction, right? So when you fail, you channel that energy of why did I fail? I'm going to figure it out. Then I'm going to put the energy into the next thing I'm going to do, right? And you learn from it because the only direction you can move is forward and you get to choose what velocity you move at. Some people choose to move forward very slowly and some people take very big steps because they're willing to be more courageous and are willing to learn from their mistakes and rather than fear them, right? So fail and fall yeah. forward. Yeah, you know, you don't always fail and land on your feet. Sometimes you have to do a little bit of a roll. Sometimes you stop for a quick second. But as long as you're going forward, that's all that matters. I have all of the grace and dignity of a walrus. And somehow I manage every time that I fail to look at least a slight amount of dignified <laughs> as I belly flop my way to future success. <laughs> Actually, that should be the name of my book, Vero. Ooh, belly flopping towards success. <laughs> save that one. That's a good title. <laughs> I like that. You know, and that does kind of also lead into the next point. You know, you don't dwell on problems when you have emotional intelligence. The thing is, is that you're focusing your attention on, you know, positivity. Everybody has problems. Everybody has strife. And the more that you fixate on problems, the more that they grow and grow and grow. And you lose sight of the big picture. 
When you hyper-focus on one particular area, you create and prolong negativity, stress, the, 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 the cultivation of you know, negative emotions in your life, and that hinders your ability to perform. So when you encounter problems, when you encounter stress, when you focus on actions that can better the situation, if you have a problem, you can freak out about it or you can try to find a solution. This is very stoic. This is very pragmatic. Yeah, I was going to say it's very stoic thought as well, for sure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you want to create a sense of personal well-being and and cultivate a, a mindset of positive emotions because that's going to be what improves your performance. And the more that you improve performance, the easier it becomes to make exciting, daring ventures, the easier it becomes to succeed. And it, it kind of feeds itself into a positive feedback loop, which is really nice. So the thing is, is that emotionally intelligent people, they tend not to dwell on problems because they would rather focus on solutions. And that can seem to be very backwards for some people who feel like they need to vent, who feel that they need to get all the stress out. When you encounter somebody kind of like me, I don't necessarily vent all that much because when I encounter problems, I resolve it. And if I can't resolve it, I have to move on from it. I'm not going to dwell on it because there's nothing more I can do. So it's a waste of energy to me. And some people think that that's me just living a life of reckless abandonment where I refuse to face problems head on, I am facing the problems head on. It's just if I can't, for example, cure world hunger at this moment, I'm not going to focus on it because I'm more pressing things. If I can, you know, work on myself, work on a more local level, then that ultimately cultivates to the larger picture. When you focus on problems that you can't fix, when you focus on problems and you get so stuck into them, you don't grow. You become frozen. You don't fall forward. You fall flat. And you can't do that. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And then moving forward from there, we've got number seven, which is they won't hang around negative people. This one is actually, I think, a really important one that I think in the furry fandom is kind of tough. Because I do see a lot of people uh, kind of wanting... There's always friend groups where people want to kind of... There's always that tendency to white knight or kind of be the knight in shining armor for somebody where there's like there's the really negative, like depressed, angsty, like really negative person. Everyone's like, oh, well, we don't want them to feel excluded. So we want, you know, we want to bring them along. And that's all very nice. But you want to be sure that when you do that, uh, you want to be inclusive of people who are depressed, absolutely. But be very careful to set emotional boundaries with people who are very negative, because while it's important to be inclusive, and you definitely do want to be inclusive of people, you want to make sure that you're not exposing yourself to that raw negativity and internalizing it yourself, right? So there's a difference between being sympathetic and listening to someone kind of vent a little bit and uh, to be kind kind of involuntarily empathizing with them and kind of being sucked into their negative emotion, right? So you want to be careful to remain sympathetic but maybe not to become empathetic with someone who is extremely negative because in that situation, that empathy is going to be a double-edged sword and you're actually going to suffer from being empathetic. If you're a fan of a uh, recent film, you know, there's the, uh, the, the recent, um, uh, what's it called? Help me out. The uh, space movie 
sequel. Guardians of the Galaxy. Thank you. Yes, so there's an empath in that movie, and like you know, she'll start like bawling when she touches somebody who's sad, right? And like that's essentially the, the problem, right? Like you don't want to start crying because somebody else is, is sad. Like you don't have to cry. You can be like, oh, I'm really sorry you're crying, without being like, oh, wow, wow, now I'm crying. Like you, you want to make sure you separate those two things because internalizing a lot of negativity is actually going to bring you down. It's going to keep you from operating at your peak performance in terms of your own emotional health. So just be careful of that. It's one thing to be sympathetic and another to be empathetic. Now, if it's your partner and they told you that their you know, grandmother just died, then yes, maybe you do want to be empathetic. Maybe it, it does make sense you want to be crying with that person. Maybe sharing that pain in that, in that situation is appropriate. But you want to make sure the pain, you, you're, the people you choose to share pain with are generally the people who are the closest to you, right? They're like your parents, maybe your siblings, maybe your, your spouse or your, your primary partners, right? Those are the people you would choose to be empathetic with. You want to maybe be careful not to be empathetic with everybody, right? Yeah, you want to avoid building bridges to places that are strictly negative in your life. Um, it's one thing like Vera was saying, for it to be somebody that's already established connections with you that's going through a rough time. But I've had people who will message me on Telegram, on Twitter, and it just starts off, I'm having a really bad day, and it's like, I don't even know you. <laughs> like, I'm having a shit day too. Like, fuck, you know? Sometimes I don't have, like, I'm sorry, even as a podcaster, like, I get really <laughs> tough questions from people sometimes. Like, you know what? Man, you're having a tough day. I'm having a tough day. Like, you know, we're people too. But yeah, exactly. Like, that's the yeah. thing. It's like, it's a really tough way to make an introduction, right? So, you know, what you can do in cases like this, unfortunately, you kind of have to treat it as if the person is smoking a cigarette. If you don't like secondhand smoke, you have to kind of move away while they're smoking. When people vent like that, especially if you don't know them that well, Maybe you walk across the street and you go about your day. And when they're done smoking, maybe you can try to become friends. Uh, so the, the next point actually is something that, that I accidentally brought up because I didn't look far enough down. Uh, they don't have grudges. <laughs> I was um, say, we, we addressed this one right, so I'm just going to skip yeah, it. For we've it. In yeah. the interest of time, we're just going to move on. We yeah. talked about it. So the, Because pandas don't read, it's fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. <sighs> Ah. You're just revealing that you're slightly less prepared about this topic than I was because I picked it this week. Sorry, we're, we're going behind the curtain. We're going behind the curtain here. <laughs> oh. Oh, Vero. Oh, you will regret that. Give me five minutes. But oh. Panda, don't hold a grudge. Please don't oh. hold a grudge. Oh, my God. Using your own article against me, Vero. <laughs> Damn it. I know that's pretty emotionally abusive. I, I'm pretty bad. I'm a bad dog. <laughs> anyway, we'll move on to point nine, though. Point number nine. So <laughs> they won't say yes unless they really want to. So in the, in the context of a sex podcast, this kind of sounds like an informed consent issue. <laughs> it kind of is, right? So like, it really comes down to like, don't fucking say yes to things you don't actually want to do. And there's so many people in the fandom. I feel like, and artists. I'm looking at you. Don't say yes to shit you don't actually want to do. If you're not open for commissions, don't take a fucking commission. Like, I'm sorry to have to say it this bluntly, but like, 
God damn, I see so many artists walking around stressed beyond belief because like, oh my God, I took on so many commissions at the con. I just, I couldn't say no to people. And uh, I've got all this work and I don't know how I'm going to do it. And like, wow, I'm so sorry for that person because now they set themselves up for a really negative interaction because they're going to fail to deliver on a promise. And so they're going to have, they're going to feel shitty about that. They're going to have to tell somebody that they're going to feel to deliver. They're going to ruin somebody else's day. They're going to make somebody else angry. There's a financial factor, right? So, like, this is a horrible situation. So, but you have to learn how to say no, right? So, no is a very, very powerful word. And some people are kind of, I think, our culture has kind of taught people that saying no is impolite. It's not impolite. You need to be able to say no. If somebody says, would you like to be my friend, and you don't want to be their friend, you need to say no, I, would, I don't really want to be your friend. I have enough friends right now. I don't have the emotional bandwidth to take on another person right now. I'm really flattered that you would like to be my friend, but unfortunately, I don't have time for that. If you'd like to interact with me occasionally on Twitter, we can stay in touch, but I just don't have time to invest in someone new right now. And I'll, I'll say it very bluntly like that to people sometimes because, frankly, that's a less painful thing to do than leave somebody on, right? So you have to be willing to say no. And it's kind of like ripping off a Band-Aid, right? You just say it. Would you like to hang out? No. Would you like to take on this project? No. Would you like a seat on the board? Fuck no. <laughs> right, Panda? And honestly, listen, when people say no, accept no as no. Don't accept no as convince me. Because it's not. If they say no to fucking, then it's a no. If they say no to wanting to hang out, it's a no. If they say no to taking commissions, it's a goddamned no. It isn't you have to beg and whine and complain until you get your way. It is a no. No is kind of a final frontier. You do not get to explore it. It's done. It's over with. It's a no. And that means avoiding those kind of social niceties you may have learned, like, I don't think I can, or I have to check my schedule, or let me get back to you, or, oh, that sounds like if that sounds like it would be fun, or I'm not sure, I'm not certain. No, right? Fucking no. The answer is no. You don't have to, because those other, those other statements mm-hmm. might sound like social niceties, but they're really just designed to lead the person on slightly so that you can avoid the, the pain of having to reject them, right? You're not saving the other person anything. You're only saving yourself the pain of having to reject them. So you're kind of just being a jerk when you do that, right? If that, you're saving yourself pain. You're not saving them anything. So don't do that shit. Just say no, right? You know, when I lived in Japan, that was actually very common where people would say yes to things like, hey, I'm having a get together. Would you like to come? Yes. And then they wouldn't show up because they actually meant no. But they said that in order to save me face because saying no is like a very heavy rejection. And I had a friend while I lived over there and uh, he and I were co-workers and he did this to me a few times. And finally, I had to tell him, okay, Yuki, like, if you don't want to do something, I understand the cultural things, but you can just tell me no. And I'll ask you if you want to do these things in private between you and me. That way you don't feel obligated to say yes to something that you aren't going to attend. And I'm not going to be upset. If you don't want to do something, it's completely fine. And... He managed to kind of get over that. And for, for, for us, especially in like Western society, for those of us that live in the West, I understand you want everybody to feel happy. You want to, everybody to feel 
oh, well, they care. I care. I'm going to do this. Saying no is the nicest thing you can do to somebody. Trust me. If you, well, the thing is, yeah, stereotypically speaking, this is a fem, a f- or of course, female leaning issue too. So, like, uh, girls and people who are raised as girls tend to face this issue of being culturally raised to say yes and to be agreeable and just you know don't don't reject a man or you know don't make a man feel uncomfortable or you know a lot of these sorts of traditions, right? Or especially in the West, are very feminine dominant, right? Fuck their comfort. Say no. It's okay. Like, and if, and if you don't feel comfortable saying no, like, and do you want backup? Find me. I'll be behind you. And I'll just like, oh, she said no. Mm-mm. Back off. Cause you can say no. And it doesn't make you a bitch. It doesn't make you any negative word that a guy might refer to you as. It makes you a fully realized, independent, self-actualized person, regardless of gender. So you be you. And if you don't want to do something, don't make people guilt you into it. Don't make social or cultural norms make you feel obligated to do something. You do you. And if people want to give you shit for it, then good news. You don't have to let them in your life. You can say no to that bullshit too and refuse to even further the idea of building connection with that person. It's kind of the beautiful thing about no. It really kind of shows you who cares in your life. If... I mean, I've said no to you before, Vero. Yeah. Like, and not- having no respected, have, receiving a no and having no respected and having no repercussion yeah. is actually one of, the, one of the most powerful things that can actually be a good, positive bonding experience yeah. in a relationship, right? Yeah. Is if, if you ask me to do something and I say no, and then we're both like, okay. Yeah. That's good, right? Okay. That's, a good, that's a good interaction. We'll find a way to work around it. We'll find a way to make something work. Okay. No, that's cool. Well, um, we'll figure something else out. And right. guess what? The world didn't end. Um, and like we've we've managed to run a podcast together for over a year and a half now, basically, without having any major conflicts, even despite the fact that we don't always agree. People think that we like are like share a hive mind or something. We always agree. That's not the case. We're just good at conflict resolution because we, we realize that one of us saying no to the other isn't going to be a relationship ending event, right? Yeah. So, you know, that that's kind of been what the the real secret behind the show is if we really want to lift the veil, it's that Vera and I actually practice everything we preach. And, you know, these nine steps, these are things that, you know, seeing laid out like this, these are things that I had to discover over nearly a decade of living. And it's kind of stupid to see them presented so succinctly as like a stupid <laughs> clickbait article. Like it almost makes me mad because <laughs> the amount of time it spent me to get all this, gather all this wisdom was like a very long amount of time. And here's this asshole who's like, here, I'm just going to fart out this like one page. Like here's not, here's a fucking top 10 list fucker. Like here, just take it and here, eat it. So there's a clip art of a guy <laughs> whose mouth looks weird. Like enjoy, enjoy like, motherfuckers. This, this is basically self-actualization and nine easy steps. So he's like, yeah. fuck, and, and it kind of works, though. And meanwhile, anyway. I had to take two courses of philosophy <laughs> just to understand point one, motherfucker. Yeah, so, I know. God but, damn it. I had, to read, I had to read, like, the fucking stoicism of Marcus Aurelius to understand half of these. There's oh. only so much Rene Descartes that you can read before you start going crazy. But here, Dr. Travis Bradbury is here to screw you over. You college intellectual bullshit. I have an Ivy League degree. Well, we're going to add him to the list of guys whose dicks I would probably suck without being asked twice because, fuck, this is well written. So anyway. I seems like a good guy. (laughs) Indeed. I I really appreciated this contribution to the public 
knowledge banks. <laughs> so go to Talent Smart and read this cool article. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's also a really great uh, introduction for this week's topic because having very high emotional intelligence is going to be extremely important for making our topic work, which is a poly and mo- polyamorous and monogamous orientation mixed relationship work. And mm-hmm. some people might ask, what, Vero, the fuck is a poly monogamous mixed orientation relationship to begin with? And that is a great question. So what we are talking about here is a situation that arises in which one person feels the desire to be polyamorous, which means that they feel the desire to be sexually and or romantically and or emotionally intimate with multiple individuals. And the other person feels the desire to be monogamous, a.k.a. they feel the desire to be sexually, emotionally and romantically intimate with one person or at least predominantly one person. Right. So that those are two. That's a clash of desires and orient. Some people would even say that's a clash of orientations. Some people argue that polyamory versus monogamy is actually an orientation difference. Now, I'm not one of those people. I think that's kind of BS. But I think um, you can kind of view it almost as being such. Right. And in, in this particular discussion, it's going to seem like that more so than in other situations, because we are talking about kind of. Uh, two different alignments. If think of maybe in terms of Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like it's two different alignments, right? We've got the polyamory alignment and we got the monogamy alignment, and they they kind of clash a little, right? It's like having it's like having that like lawful evil like you know character, and then like the the, the paladin like in the in the same party. It's like what's this lawful evil wizard supposed to be doing with this paladin? Like how are, like what what are they doing? What are they talking about over lunch, right? Like oh he casts protection from evil i guess sal salazar can't give me hand me his fork today you know like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just awkward right <laughs> yeah so i guess you know the crux of this is trying to create a relationship that is both poly and monogamy neutral where everybody yeah yeah where everybody kind of gets along and it's not one side winning out over the other it's creating a nice balance between the two of them this is going to be kind of a bit of a fireside chat episode uh, this week because this is a situation that I've kind of waded through at various points in my own relationships. And because of the personal experience and stuff, it's going to be kind of more of a personal narrative train of thought kind of show. And we like doing those occasionally because we like investing some personal voice into the show because otherwise it kind of sounds like us just droning on after a while. Not to offend any of our fans who are into dro- being drones because being a drone is hot. But... Um, that being said, <laughs> uh, I don't hate kink shame. I have to, I have to make sure I never like. There's so many ways to be micro to microaggression kink shame metrico. I've been called out on this so many times on the show for microaggression kink shaming. Do you I have to I, be careful? I think that it's strange because um, <laughs> while you've been called a kink shamer, I've been called a kink savior. So, and I, just, <laughs> I, I love how it's the same show, right? So it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> And meanwhile, I'm just like, oh, you listen. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad you guys listen. That's great. Any feedback? Good feedback. But (laughs) that being said, so how do we how do we make this work? So polyamorous monogamous mix, you know, the way it arises tends to be that usually it comes about from a couple that's kind of exploring um, or kind of maybe new to relationships or people who aren't quite fully in touch with themselves yet. One person is kind of still exploring their desires and someone arrives at the idea that, you know what, I do kind of desire having multiple partners, right? And so you have an opening up situation where you have a monogamous, like a marriage or a you know monogamous boyfriend-girlfriend situation or boyfriend-boyfriend situation, girlfriend-girlfriend, whatever 
ZZ situation. I don't care what your pronouns are. This people dating, whatever. The point is, sometimes suddenly there's maybe an involvement of multiple people, and it might come about directly out of a closed relationship. It might evolve out of a monogamous or open relationship, taking on more romantic or emotional investment, which often happens in open relationships where, you know, your fuck buddy suddenly becomes the fuck buddy who you also call every night because you enjoy hearing their voice, right? (laughs) That's kind of like, oh, wait, it's not just about sex anymore, is it? Damn it. Um, So you'll arrive at one of those situations. That might be where you're, one place of getting here. And so... You have to then think about how are we going to make this work if only one person is arriving at this, which can happen, right? So maybe you're both dabbling in swinging or being open, and then one partner discovers, hell yes, I love this. And the other partner discovers, hell no, that scared the fuck out of me. I don't want this, right? So maybe you don't, you're don't, you not quite in the same place. And then, you know, I think the traditional advice, and this is still probably the traditional advice in 98% of these cases, um, would be to break up. Most people would say, you know what, that's an orientation. Like, you guys are so far apart on the axis of what you want, you guys should just break up. And you know what? I'm going to admit it that in most cases, I think this style of relationship is so challenging that it's probably not going to work. And I I don't mean to discourage anyone. And the whole idea of this show, right, is about making it work. So I'm not saying it can't work. I'm just saying this is a really tough one. This is like one of those like super duper varsity level relationship styles because there's just a lot to deal with here that makes it tough. So that said, you know, just be aware you're doing something really challenging and keep your expectations reasonable. You know, that 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 needs to be said. So that's kind of how you get into it. Now, what what tends to be the problem? So the problem is you left, you left the situation, basically, let's just give like a case study, right? So let's say that it's like Friday night, and I'm, in, I'm now in a polymonogamous mixed relationship, and I want to go out on a date with Metrico, right? So I'm going to leave Koji at home. And yes. Koji, Koji is monogamous, right? He just wants to be with me because he's like a loyal fox, okay? In this scenario, anyway. So um, that being said... I now have to deal with the problem of there being a lonely fox who's left at home because I'm out with Metrico having a great time. Maybe I decided to sleep over at Metrico's place, right? So now I've got a lonely fox who's left at home in an empty bed who's missing being held by his collie because I'm over with Metrico, right? So maybe Koji and Metrico are great friends, but now this is starting to maybe erode their friendship because there's some, some tension because now there's some competition for my attention, right? Or there's some, you're both wanting my time. And so uh, there's a lot of op- opportunities, as you can see, just from that very brief case study, which is not at all accurate. And Metric and I have no interest in dating each other, surprisingly. Um, stop shipping us, everyone. <laughs> that was a very outlandish case study because Koji's a relationship anarchist. But the point I'm trying to make is that in this situation, there's a huge opportunity for drama, heartbreak, stress, jealousy, envy, fear of missing out insecurity, doubts, like, holy crap. Basically, anything, any flaw in your personality, any chink in your emotional armor, any emotional intelligence foible you might have, kind of from the top of the show, right? Any area up there where you don't quite hit on every mark, it's going to get exposed and slammed hard in this relationship style. And that's just because when when one person has monogamous expectations, 
you basically have to be everything to that person in addition to being some things to a group of other people. And it's really, really tough to be everything to one person at the same time that you're also something to other people because your time can only be split so many different ways before it becomes hard to be everything to someone, right? And so it's, you need to you know, really arrive at some solutions, some ways to manage time in this type of a relationship that prevents it from being just a complete fucking mess, to be perfectly frank. Uh, do you have anything you want to add to that, Metrico? I mean, the one thing that I think about whenever I consider these types of relationships, um, there's there's a lot of potential for negativity, like you were saying. And some of that negativity can come if your monogamous partner feels that you've been misleading them. So let's say that you are not new. This is not your first time at the rodeo when it comes to relationships. And you know that you prefer polyamorous style relationships. If you convince your partner, yeah, I'm totally down with monogamy for you. I'll be monogamous. And then the second that the relationship starts, you're like, actually, I'd rather be poly, but we're in a relationship together. So you're going to have to suffer through it. That's kind of a dick move to do. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the Futurama movie. Uh, I believe it's called The Beast of Many Backs, where Fry starts dating a girl and they decide that they're going to move in together. And when he moves in, he realizes that she has like five or six other boyfriends, other husbands, and they're all this wonderful little poly unit. And he was expecting monogamy. And part of that entire movie is him trying to make it work and not trying to spoil things, but it probably doesn't work out the way that he expected. You, you shouldn't ever beat and switch somebody to be in a relationship with you. That being said, in cases where this sort of situation arises organically, where you both try open relationships or poly relationships, you do some exploration, some experimentation, and you decide, hey, I'm more monogamous, and your partner's like, actually, I feel kind of poly, so if we want to stay together, you like, I, I feel like I should be allowed to continue to explore this. You just have to have such a high level of communication. It's one of the biggest problems that I see, and this is something that I've actually experienced. Um, I've been in such a relationship as a monogamous partner, and my boyfriend would take would bring his metamors along with him on dates with me. And that kind of really skeeved me a lot. And mind you, this was many, 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 many years ago back when I was far less self-realized and the, the the amount and the lack of attention that I felt at that where I wanted to have a night with him but instead I was having a night with him and my metamore it really soured the entire experience and while I might have been more tolerant and more understanding had there been separate dates for separate people and then maybe in a non-date, non-special sort of environment, we all could have hung out and gotten to know each other a little bit better. Here I was 
thrown into a romantic sort of circumstance where I was forced to vie for attention. That relationship did not work out. And a lot of it had to do with a lack of communication and understanding on everybody's part. I was not very good at communicating my feelings and my desires. And he was not very good at understanding how he was being hurtful. (laughs) Because for him, he's getting the best of both worlds. Whereas myself and the metamor were kind of losing out on special events, special feelings, because we had to constantly feel in competition with one another for any sort of attention. Um, so you, you have to communicate so incredibly much more in relationships like this. And honestly, it's almost like you have to set up a calendar to plan things out because you don't want to neglect your partner that's monogamous as you explore polyamorous options. If you neglect the person at home, if you neglect your monogamous partner, eventually they're going to seek somebody that's monogamous and they're going to leave the relationship because if you treat somebody as if they're replaceable, they're just going to replace themselves. And that's kind of the truth of the matter. You, you can't treat people in that fashion. So if you're going to, or if you find yourself in a circumstance or a relationship style that is similar to this, you have to treat everybody as a unique individual. Not everybody is going to be compatible. Some metamors do not get along. Some metamors should not be left alone in the same room at the same time without adult supervision. Bad things can happen. It is your responsibility as the polyamorous member of the relationship to ensure that nobody feels neglected of your attention. And it is also your responsibility to heighten the level of communication that you have and to broaden your understanding. Because the second that you become self-centered and you don't listen to people when they express their vulnerabilities, when they express their jealousies, when they express their envy, and when you just say, well, you're being irrational, figure it out, I'm going on a date now, bye-bye. The second that you leave your partner, your monogamous partner especially, alone to stew in their thoughts without any reassurance, without any sort of positive reinforcement that, yes, I still do love you, yes, you are still great, I love you, I think you're awesome, you're beautiful, you're gorgeous. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with us. The second that you don't indulge or engage in that kind of discourse is a second that you are essentially bidding that partner goodbye. So I, I really like the way Metrico broke it down and really focused on communication as being the primary solution there. And now that I'm moving into my kind of solutions, what I wanted to talk about, I kind of want to break it down into two different steps. Uh, one of them is really communication-based. Uh, and that's kind of what Metrico was talking about. But the other is really just kind of almost before that the communication even happens. And it's really just based on two kind of two two very closely similarly related empathy skills. One of which is empathy with your partner, and that's going to be the key to unlocking compersion. And the other is empathy with your future self. And this is actually a skill that a lot of people have difficulty with. But it's really the key to basically making good long-term decisions 
And those are really the decisions you want to be making within the context, especially romantic relationships, because making things based on emotions that are in the kind of heat of the moment is going to leave you being very impulsive and making decisions that leave you maybe temporarily relieved of a stress that you're feeling in the moment, but don't actually give you much long-term satisfaction. For example, let's say your partner makes you feel jealous and to relieve that jealousy, you break up with them. Okay, well, good. You're not feeling jealous anymore, but... Well, now you're single. <laughs> so, oops. Like, did you? What did you gain from that? Like, I mean, okay. Like, maybe. I mean, maybe it was if they made you jealous by like screwing your sister on your wedding night, then maybe okay. But maybe if they made you jealous by like checking out somebody's butt, like why? What did? Why did you react that way? Right. So, like, there's a scale of reaction you have to be careful to think about. Right. So, be very care- in tune with that. Don't don't uh, don't 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 get carried away, and be careful to empathize properly with your future self so that you're making good long-term decisions. So think about like, hey, what would I, what would, what's the decision I would make if I wasn't feeling afraid right now? What's the decision I would make if I wasn't feeling jealous? What's the decision I would make if I were feeling compersionate? If I was just feeling happy for my partner that they're happy right now and I wasn't feeling any negativity? How, what, what would I say then? What would I think then? How would I respond in that situation, right? And maybe you want to borrow from that version of yourself and behave as that person would, right? Sometimes you do kind of have to fake it till you make it in the situation. And you have to kind of, at, you know, be the person you wish to be, right? So let's say that you're maybe feeling a little jealous, but you mentally you know you're okay with what's happening, right? So your partner, let's say you're the, you're the monogamous partner and your spouse is out and they take you, they take a new boyfriend to your favorite bowling alley, and honestly, like you would love to be out bowling with your partner right now. And you were just like, wow, that'd be an amazing date that I would love to go on. But they took someone else there and I'm left at home and I would love to be bowling tonight. And like, this sucks, right? There's a lot of different ways that you could process that emotion, right? One would be to call up your partner and yell at them, ruin their date scream at them for saying, how dare you take my par- someone to, to, our, the, to that spot? And like, why wouldn't you think to take me there and completely ruin what your partner is doing and give them no chance to enjoy themselves? And your partner might come home to you, but they're not going to come home to you wanting to make you feel better, probably, right? They're going to come home to you feeling upset that their date was ruined. And there's just going to be a lot of negativity on both sides, right? It's not really a recipe for success. You know what would be a better option? would be to think about, you know... I, how would I respond if I wasn't upset right now? I would probably just wait for my partner to come home. And when my partner came home after their date, I'd ask them how it went. And I'd, I'd offer some polite, you know, reassurance that I'm glad everything went well. And then later, I'd probably say, you know what? I really miss bowling with you. And I love that place that you took your, your, your new partner to. I love, I really miss going there with you. Would it be, wouldn't it be nice if we went there on a date together very soon? We could go and maybe make it a special thing between us and take, have, a, have a special date you know, for us to go there. And so now you're actually offering your partner a positive interaction and you're offering them an opportunity to please you without any negativity really being, being inferred in that situation. And you're, you're opening yourself up for a positive interaction rather than a negative interaction, right? And it can be really, really difficult to hold back the negativity in that situation, especially if you're really hurting, right? But... You want to make sure that if you do feel the need to express it to a partner, sometimes you do feel the need to confide those feelings, right? And your partner, ideally, if they really love you, should be able to accept your feelings, even if they don't agree with them, or even if they feel 
you know, some chagrin or some shame or guilt at making you feel that way, they should still be able to hear you out, right? But perhaps that's not something you feel comfortable with right away. You might want to hold that back until, again, later, as I had mentioned earlier, and ha wait until the situation you're not actually feeling the emotion anymore, but you can buy, kind of write it down and then tell your partner about it at a later date and say, hey, you know, when you did this thing a while ago, it made me feel X and Y. I didn't want to talk about it with you at the time because I didn't want to spoil your good time. But I just want to address it with you now so that if a similar situation arises in the future, we might be able to handle it in a way that is less stressful for me, right? So try to, you can address it removed from the situation in a non-threatening way where there's no stakes, right? Because when you address it in the moment, it can be pretty high stakes. Like let's say they're out with their partner right now, right? Addressing it in the moment is pretty high stakes, right? But if you wait... If you wait until nobody's out on a date and you're just at home, it's Sunday morning, and you're just kicking the shit. You're sitting on the couch and it's like, you know what, man? It kind of sucked when you took them to that bowling alley. <laughs> That's actually a great time to have that conversation, right? Because there's, like, there's nothing at stake then, right? It's not, it's not really affecting anything. Like, you can just kind of shoot the shit about it. Like, oh, yeah, sorry. That's kind of boneheaded of me. You probably would have liked to go there, right? And like, yeah, I would have. Do you think we could go soon? Like, yeah, totally, right? Like, you can just kind of make it like that kind of a conversation, right? But you want to make sure that you're having it in a non-confrontational, non-accusational way to keep it non-violent and to not make it seem like you're coming after your partner, but instead you're offering your partner the opportunity to empathize with you and to maybe offer you an experience that will actually make you feel better, right? Absolutely. You know... One of the things that I like to consider when it comes to bringing up these sorts of situations is you never want to, I, I wouldn't say you don't want to sour the mood because ultimately whatever the situation is, it's going to be slightly soured. You never want to tack on stress on top of stress. If you know that your partner is say under a deadline the last thing you really want to do is burden him or her with more stress. When you kind of add on to that, you amplify the negativity to just it's, 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 it's a bad situation to be in because when negativity is exponentially multiplied, nobody wins. You might have a legitimate issue. You might have significant problems and want to talk about them. And there may not be a quote-unquote good time to bring them up. But sometimes you have to choose not necessarily the battles that you fight, but you have to choose when the best time to fight them is. Because let's say that Vera and I have a disagreement. We're going back to this theoretical relationship that we're in on this episode. So... If Vera and I were to have a disagreement and I felt that I was in the right and I wanted to bring it up, I wouldn't wait until he's working under deadline for one of the, you know, jobs that he has. You know, he has one hour to submit a <laughs> high level article and I'm just going to telegram him and say, hi, so we need to talk about you being a shithead. Because not only is that going to impact his ability to be emotionally there, it's going to impact his ability to do his job. It's going to impact his overall life and well-being, potentially. If he can't deliver on that project, he might lose that client. He might lose money. That will impact the relationship. It, it, it cultivates a cycle of negativity. 
So when you want to discuss negative topics and negative situations, you want to do it in a way that does not foster a negative cycle. So finding times where things are not under super amounts of stress. Maybe you don't wait for, hey, I'm going on a date with, you know, my other boyfriend in an hour. Do you want to, like, cuddle or maybe, like, hang out until then? Yeah, and while we're doing that, I want to talk about you being a shitty person. Okay, go have fun with your other... (laughs) Finding the appropriate time. It might be the right battle that you want to fight, but it may not be the correct time. Determine your motivations. If you are ever operating under a motivation of causing strife and just unmitigated destruction in your relationship, if you want to make your boyfriend or girlfriend suffer, you have the wrong motivations and you should possibly not be in that relationship. Very true. That's something you have to consider. These kinds of relationships where you are monogamous and your partner's polyamorous, or maybe you're the polyamorous one and your partner's monogamous, these do not always work. And the and just because they've worked in the past for you does not mean that this one will work for you now. Again, nobody is replaceable. We're not just interchangeable parts that make the relationship drive. We all have our own directions, our dreams, our desires. And sometimes this just is not a fit. And if you are ever going out of spite, if that is your motivation in the relationship, find another relationship. Get out of this one, because if it's not already toxic, it's very soon to be. It can be difficult to make that evaluation, though. And I know that I'm coming all doom and gloom and saying these relationships never work. They do work. I've seen them work rather successfully. I've seen the... Hinge relationships work beautifully where two partners, both are monogamous, and you have one hinge that is poly. And those relationships I've seen work for years and years and years and years, and they're beautiful, they're gorgeous, they look like Linda Evangelista, there's nothing wrong with them, but they take a lot of work. They take a lot of planning. They take a lot of communication. They take... A lot of de-escalation because they have arguments like you wouldn't believe. And they view the arguments not as being relationship ending because they understand that it is okay. It is natural to have disagreements. It is natural to sometimes fail in a relationship, but they support each other. They understand each other and they work together to make each part of the relationship successful or as successful as it can be. When you get into relationships like this, just because you're monogamous doesn't mean that you can be standoffish. You are part of the relationship as a whole. And just because you might want to keep your partner to yourself does not mean that you can't really contribute to the idea of fostering a safe, sane, non-toxic community. You don't have to put on a polyamorous t-shirt and start waving flags. But what you can do is do your best to make everybody in your relationship, even if it's your metamor, as happy as possible without being walked over because that is going to return positivity to you. 
That's the way that these kinds of relationships succeed. You invest in the other people, your metamors, your partner, whatever it might be as a monogamous individual, because that's going to pay dividends to you. If your metamors are happy, and if you're happy, then the relationship is stable. If there are problems, having a good connection with your metamors is going to make communication and conflict resolution simple. You can't be aloof. Just because you want to be, you can't. If you want to be aloof, if you want to not have to deal with metamors, then you have to date somebody monogamous. That's it. These are standard complications. These are standard difficulties that people can run into. But ultimately, they're not the end of a relationship. These are not relationship enders. These are relationship complicators, relationship problems. These are not failures. If you want to remain in the relationship, you have to find a way to overcome them together. Not just you, not just your partner, but everybody has to make it over that hill. And if you leave somebody behind, then that relationship is essentially over. If you don't want to fight that fight, if you don't want to be there for everybody in the relationship, find a new relationship. It's that simple. And it doesn't make you a bad person either. That's the thing. There's 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 a, this misconception that we shame people that don't want to be in polyamorous relationships, which is odd because I would be shaming myself. Okay. There is no shame in saying that a polyamorous, monogamous, blended relationship is not for you. There is no shame in saying that you can't do it. There is no shame in saying that you need to be with a monogamous person. That is 100% within your agency, 100% on you, and that is okay to do. If that is your expectation and your partner changes that expectation, you are legit 100% cool to say, good luck, let's stay friends, we're on Facebook, and find somebody else. Don't let somebody make you into being a bad person. Don't let it be this scarlet letter that you have to bear. It's not. That relationship just didn't work. And now you know that maybe relationships that follow that style won't work for you. Congratulations, you've had a learning lesson. We can all clap our hands, join hands, sing Kumbaya, and move on. Nobody's the villain in this story. Everybody just had different expectations and shit happens. We can move on together. We should stop villainizing people, though, who leave relationships because it doesn't follow the structure that they know that they need in order to be most successful and most happy and an intimate, loving relationship. Polyamorous or monogamous, whatever style, as long as it's being followed ethically, it's beautiful and it's fine. Some people find these blended style relationships to work perfectly for them, and that's good. It doesn't work for everybody, though. And that's yeah, the, the point one, of the show. <laughs> totally. The one thing that I will say that where I see it work the best, and I want to make this point before we wrap up the topic, is just uh, when the monogamous partner is someone who maybe only has one partner but has another passion. So someone who's very passionate about their work or someone who's very passionate about a hobby or maybe they are a fursuit maker or they are an artist or they have, they're a gamer and they have something that they're really passionate about that they put a lot of time into. It's a major hobby. 
And that's something they can turn to when their partner is out doing things with another partner, right? Where it doesn't work tends to be with monogamous partners who are the extremely clingy and emotionally needy type who really need to to have their hands held at all times. Because in that situation, there's really no way to accommodate that person while you're out with another partner, right? That's just a recipe for that person being constantly upset. And in some situations, you can get over that by, you know, thinking of, you know, empathizing with the future self and thinking, you know, I'm going to sacrifice for my partner now in order to be happy later. But that tends to be something you can do sporadically and not something you can do every single time. So you want to make sure you're not somebody who really, really, really needs your partner to be there the entire time because that's going to make you a pretty... Uh, recipe for being upset, right? So get a hobby. <laughs> Pretty much, you need you need to find a way to keep yourself occupied. Perhaps in that case, <laughs> you know, that's a good point that you make because a lot of people don't necessarily have the understanding that it's good to keep yourself occupied in moments of absence. It's good to have your own interests. And and that's something that I find across all relationship styles, monogamy, polyamory, whatever it might be. Every one, The second that you start dating somebody, it doesn't mean that their interests become yours and your interests become theirs. I mean, I've dated people that I'm like, oh, cool, you're into this thing and I don't really care for it, but I'll still support you, I guess. But like, don't drag me into that world. Like, um. I have, well, I had, I can't say present tense because we're not together anymore. Um, I had a boyfriend who was really into a specific computer game and try as I might, I could not get involved. I, I just nothing, just no interest in it. And every time that there would be competitive gaming comp, you know, meetings or tournaments that you could watch on Twitch or the internet or you could go to in person he's like hey we should watch this together and i would get so fucking bored and he would get so irritated with me and a lot of that had to do with me not standing up and saying actually i'm not really that interested it was me trying to be a crowd pleaser it's fine to have your own interests it's fine to have your own hobbies it's fine to keep yourself occupied with things in your life that you yourself enjoy don't feel that everything has to be mutually shared Find yourself a hobby. Find something that's productive or not productive, but it still brings you joy and move on with it. That's really it, you know? It sounds really basic, but quite frankly, that's a part of relationships that people try to bypass, especially when you're going through a stage of limerence. Because you're just so into each other. Everything. My interests will touch your interests. We perfect spooning and mind melt now. (laughs) it's cool your partner they don't have to like dota 2 the way that you do and you don't have to like going to nascar events you can have different enjoyments different hobbies and still be compatible so don't feel ashamed or anything of that and if you are in a polyamorous relationship it's good to have something you can do by yourself when your partner's out on dates with people that are not you it's cool it's good Find yourself there. There, there was a Steam sale that happened. You know, Prime Day is coming up. You can learn to knit, crochet, build model airplanes. I don't know. The world is your cloister. Find something you enjoy. So ultimately, though, relationships of this style they can be highly successful. 
it just takes a lot of knowledge about yourself and it takes a lot of knowledge about how to be ethical in your overall relationship styles. And I've seen them succeed. I've seen them fail just like every other relationship. So if you find yourself in this style, don't, you know, lament the situation you're in. Don't feel as if it's going to end and you're going to be miserable and worse off for it. I have a group of friends that have been in a relationship that follows this style for over 25 years. So I can tell you it does work, but like Missy Elliott says, it, if it, you know, you got to work it to make it work. Like, come on, like, is it worth it? Let me work it. So we're going to take it down, flip it and reverse it. As we move on to our questions, we have two this week and they're actually interesting questions. You know, all of our questions are interesting, but these kind of fall into more of the realm One is a personal problem, and the other is an individual that thinks that her friend might be engaged to an abusive asshole. So we're going to start out with a personal problem, though. The questioner writes in, and they say, I have erectile dysfunction issues, and I cannot take Viagra or similar pills, and unfortunately, I am also in my mid-twenties. I still want to have fun, and I'm an exclusive top, but the idea of explaining a penis pump to potential partners is incredibly embarrassing. Any advice? Well, the short answer is get over it. But the long answer is, um, I can make that sound nicer. <laughs> um, what about you, Panda? <laughs> I mean, quite honestly, you don't have to introduce it as this whole thing of shame. Like, I can't get an erection without a penis pump. Like, that's who you are. That's how your body is. I would like to point out, for the freaking record, that penetration is not the only way to have sex. You can do hand stuff. You can do mouth stuff. You can do hind paw stuff. You can... So many ways to get your rocks off that do not require physical penetration. So, just because you're a top doesn't mean that you gotta put it in somebody. If you really want to, if that is something that is really important to you, then you have to find a way to be like, hi, this is me, this is my penis, and this is my penis and a penis pump. And you can turn it into this fun kind of foreplay, like, hey, you want to turn me on? Hey, you want to get me nice and brandy? Hey, you know, help me pump my cock. Yeah, like, watch it. See, you don't have to make it into this fucking shameful experience where, okay, I got to go into the corner now. And then they just hear like pumping sounds. And then like you come back, your dick is just all red. And like, you have four cock rings on and you're like, I'm ready to go. Like, you don't have to like roid your dick out in an act of shame. You can totally just be, Hey, I like to use a penis pump because it makes it easier for me to maintain an erection and that's going to make it more pleasurable for both of us. So why don't you help me pump my penis up and then we'll have some fun. So another you know, option here too to think about is just the idea of really any time the situation arises where you have something you have to disclose like this, anytime you find yourself saying, I have to, try to change your mindset to I get to or we get to, right? So instead of I have to use a penis pump, Change it to, well, you know what? We get to use a penis pump to play as part of our sex play today. Have you ever used a penis pump before? Let, let Why don't we try it out together, right? It, it'll be kind of fun. It's kind of sexy. Let's figure out how this works, right? 
Like, make it a fun exploration game. Oh, I bet you've never tried one of these before. Let, want to see how my dick gets hard? Like, that can be kind of fun, right? Make it fun. Make it make it part. Make it sexy. Make it a game. Don't make it a negative. Like, I, rolling it out like I've got cancer. Like, you roll it out like we get to play with a penis pump, right? Get that your, can be a positive. Get your partner a penis pump. Both of you pump together. Have fun with it. It doesn't need to be. Again, this shameful act that you have to do under cover of dark. You're you're not concealing an illness that is as devastating. You just have problems keeping your dick hard. And a lot of guys go through that. You can't use erectile dysfunction medications, I would assume, because you might also have a heart condition or something that you can't take anything that would, you know, cause your your veins to do all the fun things that Viagra or Cialis does. And that's fine too. You're uniquely you. And if, let's be honest here for a second, if you are dating somebody that is so put off by the fact that you use a penis pump, the good news is that you know that they don't want to be with you. They want to be with your hard dick. And you can just kind of move on with your life. So quality, genuine people won't think anything negatively about you because if they truly love you for who you are, they're not going to care how you get your dick hard. They're just going to care that you're getting it hard with them. So don't be ashamed. You don't have to introduce it on the first date. You don't have to like ask for a three top so you can sit your penis pump at its own individual chair. Like, hi, yes, you know, I'll take a red wine. He'll take a white wine and my penis pump will take water because it needs to be cleaned. You, you don't need to introduce it like that. You know, it, it's something that you, you, you don't have to bring up on the first date. But before you start having sex, and especially if you're going to be penetrating, because as you mentioned, you are an exclusive top. That is something that you should discuss and just say, hey, you know, just letting you know, um, like I use a penis pump in order to get my dick hard. And it's something that I enjoy. And it's something that I think that you can enjoy too. and something we can do together. And if you have any questions, you can ask me, but let's do this together and it'll be fun. And we can have sexy fun times. You can like, while I'm pumping my dick, you can pump your dick in my mouth. It's going to be cool. It doesn't have to be just find ways to integrate it within your sex life, within your foreplay. It doesn't have to be this exclusive sort of event. It doesn't have to be this shame ridden event either. Yeah, I think with that we can probably move on to our next question, right? Yes, we can. The second question, they wrote in with the subject, worried about friend. Uh, they write, I have a friend who recently became engaged to a man she has been dating for less than a year. My concern is this. She met him at her job, and he has been known to jump from woman to woman at the job. Well, my friend has the attitude that what happened before her doesn't concern her. But she is constantly telling me how the woman her fiancé was with before her, keeps stirring up trouble and harassing them. To me, that is a red flag, but I can't get her to see that. I have heard stories about how this man will date women in the office and then all of a sudden stop talking to them and will talk to everyone else around them, just ignoring them in their face. One woman already has left because of how he treated her. This last woman has cussed him out a few times, but she has not left and has been hurt saying that she will not give him the satisfaction of leaving because he can't look her in the face after he, how he has treated her. Turns out that she was pregnant and he ghosted her in the same way, except this woman sits on the other side of him and now she is watching my friend have a relationship with this guy. 
I have had other people who work with my friend tell me that she doesn't look happy, they don't eat lunch together like other engaged couples do, and they keep pictures up of each other at their cubicles, which I find strange because they see each other every day, but neither one of them have pictures of their kids up. Also, she told me that when they first started dating, that he told her not to come to his cubicle because he was a private person and didn't want the other co-workers in his business, but I realize he did that because the ex-girlfriend said on the other side of him. I don't think that this man is being truthful with my friend. I tried to show my friend how ugly her situation is and to put herself in the other woman's shoes, but she feels like she has won the prize, but I think his proposal is not sincere. I just don't want my friend to get hurt by bringing this man into her life and also her child's life. What should I do? Well, it sounds like you've done what you can do. I'm just going to kind of lead off with that. I just kind of come back to like Dan Savage's advice in these types of situations, which is essentially, it's really not your situation, not your, not your problem, not your fight. Get the fuck out of worrying about other people's business, kind of, right? Like, I mean, I think you've really, you have taken all the, the steps you can take as a good friend should, right? And then you're kind of just like, well, I have to let the situation play out because it's not really my situation, right? I don't really see much else that you can do here, unfortunately. I empathize, like it sucks. This is a shitty situation. Your friend might be getting mistreated, but it's not really... I mean, there's still an adult who gets to make their own choices, right? And once you make someone aware of what you perceive the situation to be, if they don't align with you and they don't agree, they are still free to make their own decisions, right? Yeah, that's kind of a thing. Whenever you assert that people have their own individual agency, which we do, people can make terrible decisions for themselves. And if you inform them that, hey, I think you're making a mistake, and they say, I'm, I'm good, I know what I'm doing, you've done your part. You've done all that you can do. And the only thing that you can do from this point is continue to be there as a support network. Because in general, when people are actually dating horrible people, and the these people have a pattern of abuse, of neglect, of leading people on, eventually it will happen to her. It should not be your goal to expedite it. It should not be your goal to confront her or to confront him. There should be no kind of intercession on your part. If you want to remain friends with her, you kind of have to accept that she gets to make her own decisions. And you aren't raising her child. She is. And she gets to make those decisions. Now... In cases like this, once you inform, once you've made your opinion, stated your case, you kind of just have to wash your hands of it and move on. You kind of just have to say, well, I've done what I can do, and hopefully she sees my side of things. But if not, well, I've gotten my position out there. It's not to kind of put your conscience in a place of being guilt-free. It's the fact that we are all individuals and we all get to make our own mistakes, and that counts doubly so for relationships and dating. I will say, on a personal note, from what you've told me about this guy, so many major red flags have populated. Uh, I, I myself would be like, girl, girl, you need to not date this dude, but I couldn't stop her. Um, I've known guys like this man, and they, generally speaking, date their way through a workforce, and then they find a new place to start dating at. They're not really good at cultivating relationships. That being said, you also have to give 
the benefit of the doubt, perhaps this man has changed. A red flag does not mean disaster. It just means that there has been shitty behavior in the past. And it is possible that you don't know the full story, that you don't know about the conversations that he's had. Maybe he has changed. Maybe he has reformed slightly. You have to allow for that. But given the information that you provided, many, 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 many red flags. And I would be hesitant myself to allow my friend in a similar situation date without saying something. So thank you both for your questions. They, we covered a lot of material today, um, a lot of different areas. If you think that we've answered a question incorrectly, or maybe we should have lingered on a point a little bit more, hit us back on our feedback form, on our comments page, Email us, call us, write us, call us, beep us, reach us. So many ways to get into touch with us. So many ways to offer your feedback, to ask your questions. Visit our website, feralattraction.com slash contact. On there, you'll find ways to reach us. And also you'll find information about our Patreon. We do have a Patreon set up for patrons who would like to support our show financially. Your contributions help us to maintain the website, to attend new, exciting, and more far-reaching conventions, and also to explore other exciting ways to share our content to everyone. One of our donation tiers does allow for shout-outs at the end of every show. One of our longtime patrons and friends, Snares, has a Patreon of his own, patreon.com slash snares, and it is for a comic project of his called Kai Juice, The Flavor is Buff. It is an episodic, episodic rather, crowdfunded comic that releases every month, and it is free to read, but patrons do get early access and some additional rewards. It's a comic about kaijus, macrofers, size growth, and knowing who you are and rising up to challenges. It's a wonderful comic with wonderful art and writing. Speaking of writing, maybe you're a fan of literature. Well, Sarah Paulus is another one of our patrons and friends. And he has recently published a short novel with a Thurston Hall Press that is titled The Pride of the Parahumans, and you can check it out on Amazon. It's furry and high-tech sci-fi. If you're a fan of things like StarCraft, speculative fiction, you might be a fan of it. Check it out, patreon.com slash Or maybe you're looking for a new friend. Well, Myron is on Twitter. Their Twitter handle is at MyronTheFluffy, and feel free to follow for pictures and daily red panda dog ramblings. Good, fun, fluffy content. So, Vero, you were at Anthragon last week, right? I was. It was nice to be in sunny Pittsburgh. It was weather was great. It was a really nice time to be there. Um, having the furries explode out in the city, as usual, was quite awesome. I did some of the traditional things like a trip to Pramonti Brothers and, and uh, some of the local fair and some of the local diners and stuff and really enjoy that area of, of uh, the country a lot. So that's actually my favorite part of Anthrocon is just seeing all the furries spill out into a downtown area. I don't really enjoy the con as much as I enjoy the furries and the people that I meet there and, and seeing old friends and stuff like that. And that was all excellent. So I saw my good friend Mythic, who is a a uh, friend of the show who's runs a, a YouTube channel that explains furry, the furry fandom as well. And it was good to see him again. So that was all very good. Unfortunately, no panels at AC, but we w- do hope to have panels in the works for upcoming conventions like 
Uh, for example, MFF in December, we hope to have a panel submitted to that soon. And we may be doing a second panel, which is like a relationship clinic type panel, which is something we might begin offering at cons in the near future as well. So we do have more con-related things planned in the future, show-related upgrades as well. All sorts of fun, exciting things in the future for Feral Attraction. Indeed. So next week, we have a different kind of topic. Um, a while ago, we did an episode called um, Collie's Follies and Metrico's Mistakes. Um, we're going to do a part two on that. Um, sex mistakes and hot takes. We're yep. This is going to be all the little tiny things that have gone wrong that have derailed this play session or resulted in a fit of laughter rather than an orgasm. My, it's, it's, going to, it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Some of them are pretty horrifying. Some of them are pretty funny. Uh, and it's going to be a lot of uh, stuff delved from the true, the true vaults of Metrico and Vero's <laughs> sex lives. So those of you who have a prurient interest in our erotic lives will also enjoy the show for all sorts of kinky reasons. But that aside, it should be a pretty fun show. Yep. Hopefully you'll learn some uh, things to avoid in your own adventures. Yep. Um, yep. It's, it's I'll talk about why you should be completely honest with ER personnel about what happened if you come in with your ball sack bleeding. It's going to be a fun time, everybody. I can't yeah. wait. So next week, sex mistakes and hot takes. We're also going to talk about the appearance on the Savage Lovecast that we had. So it's going to be a fun week. Thanks again for your patience. Thanks again for, you know, sticking around. Next week again, sex mistakes and hot takes. Until then, I'm Metrico. And I'm Fear of the Science Collie. Be well. Thank you.